Welcome to 2024. With the 2024 election on the horizon, the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, and numerous other foreign policy and domestic news stories, it's never been more important to stay informed. The DSR Network has you covered, with experts across all of these stories, to bring you the analysis and commentary of the stories that matter. Later this month, the DSR Network will introduce the TNR Daily, featuring Greg Sargent, formerly of the Washington Post, and a close friend of the show. Don't miss a moment of our coverage. Become a member of the DSR Network today. Members receive exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to attend DSR live events, a members-only Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. For the month of January, receive 50% off your first year of membership. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSR2024 at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSR2024. Thank you for your support. Hi, this is Riley Fessler. We're approaching the two-year mark since the beginning of Russia's new phase of war in Ukraine. This week's episode from the archive takes you back to January 25th, 2021, when the world wondered when Russia would actually invade. Please enjoy. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf. This week, I'm in New York City. We are joined today by a cast of our favorite characters from across America. In Washington, D.C., we have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Hello, David. And in Alexandria, Virginia, we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown Law School. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. And in sunny California, I think, I'm not sure. (laughs) We have with us Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. Hi, Corey. Hello, David. And somewhere, New York or Washington, I'm not 100% sure, we have our friend Evelyn Farkas, former congressional candidate, recently a commentator, really interesting column we'll come to soon. How are you, Evelyn? Good. How are you, David? Very good. Good to talk to you. So the topic today, I think, is going to be necessarily Ukraine. Let me start in a way I don't normally start, but I'll start with the fact that I spent most of last week going around Washington, D.C., talking to senior officials about Ukraine. I would say that I came away with a few impressions, and one is that the administration thinks it's more likely than not that the Russians will invade. And that of the scenarios they've looked at, and they've looked at scenarios that have ranged from sort of small surgical bites being taken out of Ukraine by the Russians to massive invasions from the South and the East and the North, including potential kind of lightning strikes from Belarus down into Kiev, 
or a major push, not just of the 100,000 troops at the border, but that could involve another 100,000 troops rapidly called up straight across Ukraine to the middle, all with the objective of forcing the Ukrainian government to say it'll never join NATO and possibly to grant a degree of autonomy to eastern regions of the country so that they can be more easily in the sway of the Russians and uh, that the central government is weakened. And they're preparing for these eventualities, and they are doing so, including a you know, massive diplomatic campaign, not just with the Russians, but with NATO. It already, is, as those of you who follow these things know, includes more forward deployment of NATO troops in countries with borders on Russia, sending lethal military supplies to the Ukrainians, European Union putting together a $1.2 billion package for uh, Ukraine financial aid. There are some divisions within the EU, but according to the officials I've spoken with, there's a high degree of resolve that the, the response be strong. And they have spoken very carefully, I think, from the smallest to the largest countries in NATO. And they don't want to repeat the mistakes of past administrations, some of which they were actually in. Now, that's what they say. I know there are a variety of different views on this. I'm going to turn to Evelyn first for hers, because she laid some of them out in this uh, column to which I referred. And then we'll go around the group. So let's, let's start the discussion with Evelyn. Well, um, thanks for having me on, David. In terms of explaining my approach to this, I was in the Obama administration, in the Pentagon, and then in the Situation Room with most of the people who are now making the decisions about our current response to Russia. And response is really the right word because Vladimir Putin engineered this crisis. He decided to put this pressure on Ukraine and the transatlantic alliance and importantly, the international community at this moment in time. And we can get into why that might be so. And so the administration said we're going to threaten sanctions on a level or, or to a degree that we've never sanctioned before. So sanctions that will really hurt the Russian government's ability and the cronies, the Putin cronies ability to bank. We have threatened to send more assistance to Ukraine. And in response to urging from myself and other interested <laughs> Russia parties or interested hands, they have continued to publicly provide assistance to Ukraine. And now in response to Russia's most recent move to put forces into Belarus, they've actually announced that they're going to bolster through the NATO umbrella forces in the NATO territories to respond. The third component that I don't think they've done sufficiently to date is to go to the international community. So to go to the United Nations and to make the case about what Russia is doing here, because first of all, it, you know, as we know, in 2014, Russia altered borders in Europe for the first time using military force. And this is a violation of Article 2 of the UN Charter. It is the bedrock of the current international system, which keeps us all safe from another World War III. When Saddam Hussein tried this trick by annexing Kuwait, the international community rallied and essentially pushed him out of 
out of Kuwait. But of course, we're dealing now with a nuclear armed power, so we're not going to use military force directly to get Russia out of Ukraine. But the challenge is still there. If we let Vladimir Putin have his way in Ukraine, and ultimately what he wants is, an, is not a democratic country in Ukraine. He does not want that example for his people. He wants the autocratic, kleptocratic system that he has in Russia to be the same system that's in place in Ukraine and the entire area that he considers a sphere of influence for the Russian Federation. And until he gets his way, it will, if he gets his way in Ukraine, he will turn to other countries. And I've spoken too long, so I'll leave it at that for now. Not too long. A good frame. I'd like to go across the group, get the reactions to what I saw, what Evelyn saw. I, I will add that I think the expectation of senior U.S. officials is that if the Russians go in, they will try to keep it quick. They don't want to get bogged down in a long war with an insurgency that could be very, very difficult for them. And I do think, and I wrote something in the Daily Beast on this uh, yesterday, it's still up today, that there is a pretty strong likelihood that Russia has miscalculated that the divisions within NATO, which are real, will in the end result in a stronger NATO, a NATO that after 30 years of sort of being in search of a mission will have found its mission again. And that may actually include a NATO that also includes Sweden and, um, and Finland, and where the, the people who wanted to downplay the role will have been substantially undercut by the behavior of Putin. Having said that, Corey, what do you think? I share those judgments, David. I do think that both the Biden administration and the NATO allies have actually done pretty well in their national policies and in keeping a united front. It's really hard to keep more than 30 governments aligned to take concerted action. And I think the Biden administration having identified early the movement of Russians troop, Russia's troops, uh, you know, sent Bill Burns to Moscow to make sure the Russians knew we knew it, sharing the intelligence with NATO allies, coordinating on a common sanctions policy. I think it's a bad idea as a general rule to tell your adversaries what you won't do in the way the Biden administration said they, that the United States would not fight to defend Ukraine. But I frankly think that's not so big a mistake in this instance, because after the humiliating debacle of abandoning Afghanistan, I don't think it would have been plausible anyway and may have made other threats less credible. And I think they're doing a really good job of helping a fledgling German government. Remember, none of these people have had policymaking jobs in the last 16 years in Germany. And they're, they've got a several coalition government coming together. So we shouldn't be surprised that the Germans are making mistakes, but they're moving the right direction. And Secretary Blinken going to Berlin, not just for the consultations, but to give a public speech about why free societies should object to what Russia's doing. I think those are all really good moves. And I agree with your bottom line, David, that if the Russians do invade Ukraine again, they are going to end up with a NATO that has troops positioned to protect the eastern borders of the Baltic states, Poland, and 
probably even Romania and Bulgaria. If Putin's such a genius, how is that outcome in his interests? Yes. <laughs> I think there's a consensus among close Putin watchers that he's actually not a good strate- a strategist. He is a bit of a tactician, but a genius, no. Rosa, wh- what do you think of where we are? Uh, in a dangerous place. I mean, I don't have a, a whole lot to add other than my, you know, my biggest fear is that Putin backs himself into a corner that he feels he, he can't get out of except through more aggression. You know, that that he puts himself into a situation where anything he does other than more aggression, he feels will be perceived within within Russia as a retreat and he can't afford to do that. That's my fear. And I think the challenge for the U.S. and the challenge for for NATO and for the EU is to try to simultaneously let him know that there are as as uh, as the diplomats like to say that there are off ramps you know that there are ways out of this that will let him save face while at the same time you know being tough enough that he doesn't think oh there are a bunch of wimps they're going to let me get away with whatever i want and that that's i mean we've talked about this before it's an extraordinarily difficult tightrope to walk to sort of be tough enough to let him know that there really are consequences that he really should not put himself in the position of having to face but not so bellicose on our part that he feels like then he has to respond with increased aggression. And I, I think we're doing, as, as you have said, as Corey has said, Evelyn, we're doing about as well as it's possible to do, given that this is an extraordinarily difficult situation and given that we don't really know what is going on in his mind. Um, you know, we really don't. We, we, we know what he wants, but we don't know what price he's willing to pay to get it. I'm really glad that I'm not Tony Blinken, quite frankly. I'm really glad that I'm not Joe Biden right this minute. <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, in other circumstances, they're all admirable people to be. But at this moment, I do not envy them at all. It's, it's an extraordinarily difficult situation. The only thing I, I did want to a little bit disagree with my friend Evelyn on is, you know, I don't know that I would frame this as the U.S. needs to protect the, the U.N. charter-based system and the international legal order. Because from Putin's perspective, and he's not completely wrong to feel this way, it's, it's hypocritical on his part, but it's not completely wrong. We have also flouted those very same charter prohibitions on uh, uh, aggressive use, and use of force inside sovereign territories of other states, specifically and particularly with the invasion of Iraq in, in 2003, which most legal experts will agree was not exactly legal. And then again, in terms of how we handle the whole Kosovo situation, which from Putin's perspective, from Russia's perspective, was in effect changing international borders through the use of force. Now, those that description is tendentious and we could say, well, wait a minute. No, not exactly. It was a little bit different. And we're not we wouldn't be wrong to say that. But but I also think that we, we are not exactly blameless in turn when it comes to respecting UN charter prohibitions on the use of force by any stretch. And that doesn't mean, you know, just because we're not blameless doesn't mean that we have to now say, oh yeah, okay, never mind. The whole thing is stupid. You get to do what we got to do what we want. You get to do what you want. Because I think you are absolutely right that that way lies, you know, total chaos, uh, you know, and 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 potentially much broader conflict. But I think that the trick is to sort of figure out 
one of the challenges in the international legal order in general is sort of figuring out what level of illegality disguised as legality we can all accept in order to sort of allow the system not to fall apart by being such sticklers that we end up in a conflict every time there's any kind of infringement. You know, and and I don't think we I think we need to be very careful there because I think we have created we have been part of creating a situation in which we ourselves have contributed to the to the fraying of those very norms that we're now rightly upset that Putin is challenging in an even more egregious way. And that's part of what makes it so hard to handle. And part of the reason that I, you know, I, I think I think a better con- to me, I guess a better conversation to be having is one that says, okay, none of us is entirely without sin here, but instead of just saying, so everybody gets to break the rules, how do we think about respecting self-determination? How do we think about respecting lines that are there now? And, and you know, I think in some ways the self-determination point is, is probably our stronger argument than the sovereignty argument, given our own past actions at this point. So, Ed, I, I think in some respects, Putin has miscalculated. I think he's miscalculated about NATO and divisions within NATO. I think he's miscalculated about the United States. And there's several reasons for that. He may have looked at Afghanistan and said the U.S. is in retreat. He may have looked at every U.S. administration since the Iraq war and said the U.S. is in retreat. But he's also tested each U.S. administration. When he went into Georgia in 2008, the response was hesitant. Ultimately, there was a kind of a clear response and Gandhi went to Eastern Europe and they moved some missiles and so forth, but much more limited than what we're seeing here. The Obama response was, by most measures, except maybe Ben Rhodes on MSNBC, kind of weak, indecisive, weren't sure really what we wanted to do when Putin went into Crimea. Of course, Trump was worse. And, you know, you look at Trump, and, you know, it's really striking to remember that in 2020, in the middle of 2020, Trump suggested withdrawing a third of U.S. troops from Germany. And, you know, where would we be in that circumstance? It does make me wonder, by the way, David, if Putin isn't kicking himself and thinking, that was my moment to invade Ukraine. And well, why did I not been. take it? Right. It could have been or it could have been in July the year before when Trump said, hey, let's not give that aid to Ukraine and uh, withheld congressionally approved aid, which ultimately led him to be impeached. But, you know, so here comes Joe Biden, you know, and everybody's like, oh, you know, Joe's old and is he strong and whatever. And yet the response from Biden seems to me to be swifter, broader, deeper and stronger than he's gotten from any of the three administrations. That's a bit of a surprise. What, what do you think of it, Ed? Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I'd share almost everybody's views that Biden has so far played this relatively well with a not brilliant hand given natural European divisions. I think what I'd just picking up on previous administrations and indeed on earlier in this administration, um, Trump, of course, suborned, tried to suborn um, Vladimir Zelensky to, to provide dirt on, on Biden and got himself impeached for it. So there was extraordinary bad faith in terms of US-Ukraine relations in spite of the best efforts of, of some of uh, America's foreign service officers during the Trump years. And I think that had a warping effect on you know, what there is of Ukrainian democracy. But the Biden administration didn't show any great interest or any great priority in what was happening in Ukraine for most of its first year. 
And we got the situation where Zelensky is making moves that are stoking Putin's paranoia, giving him pretexts to move in and to saber rattle, passing laws that are punishing Russian speakers, not following up, uh, basically abandoning any attempt to pass, to enact the, to enforce the Minsk II agreement, which included a federated Ukraine, which would have some autonomy for the eastern Donbass um, region, and is therefore helped create uh, the situation where Putin's providing himself with pretext to do this. No justification for what Putin is doing, still less for anything he might do. And I share the consensus, he probably will. But it does, it does give us, in, in the words our friend David Sanger uses and, and Rosa cited, an off-ramp here, that if we want Putin to climb down from, from where he is, the best chance of doing that, I'm not saying it's a likely chance, but the least bad chance of doing that is to get back to Minsk too, to give him a face-saving way of climbing down without looking to be weak. We never intended Ukraine to join NATO, nor Georgia to join, to join NATO. We put them in a forever waiting room. It is no concession for us to say that Ukraine will not join NATO for 20, 25 years, as others have suggested. I think there are creative diplomatic off-ramps here that I hope behind the scenes the Biden administration is pursuing. i just make one more point. I agree with most of what Evelyn said. I did want to pick up on one, one thing in, in your very interesting piece, Evelyn, that you wrote in um, One Defense about there was a line that I disagreed with, and I sort of reread it because I knew we were going to discuss it on this podcast, where you say we must not only condemn Russia's illegal occupations of Ukraine and Georgia, but we must demand a withdrawal from both countries by a certain date and organize coalition forces willing to take action to enforce it. That really, really sort of brought me up cold. That, that to me is a, a, direct, a direct war situation between the world's two main nuclear powers. Are you, would you stand by that? Have I, am I missing? No, so I, I, I should have added more text in there. I was rushing to give it to the editor. So when I say a coalition of the willing to get Russia to roll back, I did not intend that we use military force to get Russia to roll back. I do believe that Russia needs to be rolled back from Ukraine and Georgia at some point in time. The outcome on Crimea must be a negotiated outcome. I'm not going to say what, what I think the final disposition of Crimea should be, but that is a complicated scenario where it needs to be negotiated. There's not even a negotiation about it. In the Obama administration that I was part of, we did the right thing right away off the bat, condemning Russia for what it did, annexing. And I think that's to get back to what Rosa said earlier. It's the annexation. It's the annexation. Yes, you have to draw a line somewhere. We didn't annex Iraq. We didn't. I mean, OK, a long time ago, we annexed parts of Mexico. But, you know, after World War II, we said no more annexation using military force. And I think that's the thing that's so dangerous, because that's what led to World War II. And if, if Putin gets away with annexing Ukraine, well, the Hungarians will raise their hand and say, excuse me, there's a part of Ukraine where we had Hungarian minorities and we want that. And by the way, there are four other countries with Hungarian minorities and we want to annex those parts back to Hungary too. So it's the annexation where I personally would draw the line. And, and I think it's important. 
And we did it with Iraq. And in that case, yes, we used force to roll them back. In this case, we have to use sustained pressure. We have to contain Russia and we have to put pressure on them to eventually roll back as they did, frankly speaking, when it comes to the Baltic states, because legally the situation with the Baltic states was very different. So I do think, unfortunately, that that part of my op-ed came off sounding like I was in favor of using military force against nuclear-powered Russia, which is not the case. But it's the principle. And if the principle is important enough, then we need to put on a better diplomatic effort. And I don't understand why, leaving aside the secretary general, you know, where is he and why is he not saying more and doing more? Our president, the leaders of the, of, uh, frankly, Stoltenberg, you know, others, they should go to the United Nations and make speeches and make it clear to the global community what's at stake here, because it's not just about Ukraine and, and Europe and the transatlantic community. China's watching this very closely. And of course, many other countries are watching to see whether we're weak in general. Well, I, I think that's a helpful perspective. And I think you should thank Ed for allowing you to clarify the uh, <laughs> thank you, point, because I, I, I think it, uh, it strengthens the piece. I'll just say two things quickly before we take our little break. And one is with regards to Ed's point about an off-ramp. Personally, I just want to, and it's a personal view, but my personal view is any off-ramp that makes it look like Putin's threat of the use of force has gotten us to take Ukraine and NATO off the table is an, should be a non-starter. Some private discussion, something behind the scenes, that may, that may, that may be worth discussing. But Putin can't gain because of what has happened here, or we've got, we've got a long-term problem. And as to Evelyn's point about annexation, annexation is bad. But I would say that in my discussions with senior people, many of whom were your colleagues, Evelyn, as you pointed out, annexation is not necessarily what they expect here. It's possible. It's possible they may seek some small annexation, the land bridge to Crimea. It's possible they may want to seek more control over regions in eastern Ukraine. But another possibility is they may seek, as the British suggested, a change of government, or they may seek to coerce the government into certain kinds of agreements. And those kind of things ought to be off the table, too. That's inappropriate under, under international law. In any event, Evelyn, this is going to be going on for a while. We hope you will come back and join us again. I know you've got to go right now. And I know those of you who are listening to us for free and who have not yet become members are going to have to go right now. We hope you will become members. Crises like this are precisely where I think we can add the most value. So go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, become a member, and you can listen to the last third of each one of these things. And we've got some very interesting things to say then. For those of you who are members, we'll be back in one moment. Hi, and welcome back. Corey, I know you've been listening to what we've just been talking about. You may have some comments on that, but I'd like to also raise another question. And that question comes from an article that appeared uh, yesterday-ish, depending on when you're listening to this, in the New York Times by Fiona Hill, who is a Russia expert and a brilliant woman. And she says, Putin has us right where he wants us. Now, she then said that's because we're so divided. He doesn't think we're going to be able to act. What do you think? She made a very strong case that Putin believes that both because of our domestic discord 
and as a result of the humiliating debacle of abandoning Afghanistan the way we did, that now's the time. And that strikes me as plausible, but neither of those conditions held in 2014 when he lurched to grab Crimea and, or at least didn't hold to the extent that they hold now. So it strikes me as a plausible explanation for what he's doing, but it doesn't explain what he did in other circumstances. So I thought it was a really important, powerful article. I'm not persuaded that the United States is the dominant characteristic in why Putin's choosing to do things now. I can see alternative explanations, namely that Ukraine has begun to get its acts together and root out corruption and try and meet the standards that would make them deserving of admission into the NATO alliance. It could be, as my colleague Leon Aaron has argued, this is about domestic legitimacy for Putin and has very little to do with the United States or things going on outside of Moscow. In Leon's judgment, he's trying the trick he tried in 2014 in advance of a Russian plebiscite to validate his continued control over the government there. I think there are potential, and there is the explanation that my another of my AEI colleagues, Fred Kagan, and the Critical Threats Project have asserted, have analyzed, which is that this is about getting around Belarusian objections to the stationing of Russian forces. And so, you know, while all of us are focused on Ukraine, what's actually happening is the long-term stationing of Russian forces in Belarus that can subvert Belarusian independence, but also be a major threat to Poland and the Baltic states. So Fiona's probably right, but she didn't explain why these other possible explanations aren't true. And she also didn't explain if American failings are the dominant Russian decision criteria, then why 2014 as the invasion to take Crimea? Yes. Well, I, I think that's it's it's a kind of interesting. I also think if that was his thinking, you know, he doesn't realize the amount of power in these things. It, it goes to the executive branch and Furthermore, with regard to uh, the calculus today, Mitch McConnell, of all people, said he thought that, you know, Biden's doing a good job. It, it does look like the sort of echoes faintly with what was considered bipartisan support in times like these. Of course, we do have Tucker Carlson on reading, you know, directly from Putin's talking points. But, you know, that is that is an extreme case. So, you know, maybe the U.S. is going to be able to behave a little bit more unified fashion than, than Putin had guessed. Rosa, in another op-ed that I saw uh, by a friend of ours, Alan Pincus in Haaretz, he said, and Evelyn, uh, I think, echoed this earlier, you know, this is not just about Ukraine, not just about NATO. It has geopolitical ramifications. And one of them is how China sees this and how China sees us leading allies, sees us vis-a-vis strength, sees us vis-a-vis our posture in the world, particularly at a time where, for example, in the case of Taiwan, there are some real 
risks and sensitivities. So how do you, do you agree? Do you agree that? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm going to get to China, but I, I was, I said jokingly earlier that I didn't know why Putin, I didn't, I don't know why Putin didn't decide that uh, December of 2020 would be a really good time to invade Ukraine. I mean, if he was looking for a moment of maximum internal chaos, you know, or the very beginning of January, 2021 before inauguration, that would have been the moment. And that would have been a moment when he could probably have correctly gambled on the Trump administration doing exactly nothing. He could have established more facts on the ground that would have become very, very difficult for the Biden administration to to undo. That is an indirect way of getting into the China question, because, of course, if I'm China, this actually might be a really good moment to do stuff that we don't want them to do, because, boy, are we distracted. You know, we have got our hands full you know, we are we are stretched as stretched as we can be in every possible way in terms of, you know, everybody's brain cells are sort of 100 percent focused on Russia and the Ukraine right now. I think China, on the one hand, you know, hopefully the the site of the U.S. operating in a diplomatically coherent fashion and assembling a fairly strong and fairly unified coalition, not a coalition of the willing Iraq style. <laughs> I'm glad that Evelyn uh, clarified her position on that because I was a little nervous too. But, but you know, no, a, a powerful diplomatic coalition that is, that is pretty much standing together to say to Russia, uh-uh, don't do it. You can't do it. We will, we will all respond very aggressively, not with military force, but very aggressively nonetheless. Those things may give China pause. You know, I think that those are things that it's a good thing for China to be seeing you know, that we that and, and you said this, uh, David, in your in your op ed, uh, as well as earlier, that ironically, Putin may be helping NATO show that it is not dead, that it is still a political force to be reckoned with. And he's helping the United States show that we are still a force to be reckoned with, that we still do play a leadership role uh, in the global sphere. And China, China will be observing that, too. But at the same time, they may also be feeling like, yeah, but they're really distracted right now. They're doing a good job, but they can only do a good job on one thing at a time. So this this is our moment. I doubt it. I don't think they're that reckless in terms of Taiwan to do anything really aggressive, but this would be a good moment. Well, maybe, although I think it would be kind of ugly to go. And now we cut from the ice skating finals in Beijing to a report. Hey, it gives them something else to put on TV. Yeah. To the skydiving, to the skydiving competition over Taiwan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. So, Ed, one of the things that of this, of course, brings up is, you know, how well is NATO working from within? And there's kind of two narratives on this. One, NATO has agreed that there should be significant sanctions. NATO has tried and maintained some high degree of, of unity in saying that. Stoltenberg has talked about great call with Biden this week, and there has been you know a lot of support for Ukraine from across Europe. But when I spoke to some senior officials and I said, "Is that you know real?" They said, "Well, you know, there's gradations. There's some countries who are just plain difficult." Specifically, made reference to Hungary. And I said, well, Germany, too. And they said, no, Germany is going through an internal debate. But Germany is going through an internal debate. They're in a different place, particularly with regard to the supply of weapons to Ukraine. And Macron seems to have a view that he wants to have a separate European 
track and he wants to sort of play a greater leadership role in that. And that seems to have some election ramifications. How, how do you think Europe is doing handling this? I mean, I think generally when we talk about Europe, we're talking for the most part about Germany. We're not worried about Spain or Italy's or Poland's NATO commitment here. And we're not, in spite of France being France and Macron being Macron, we're not worried about the French perspective or we're not too worried about the French perspective. We're really worried about whether Germany can produce a unified and coherent um, response to its main energy supplier at a time when it's closed down its nuclear industry, I think extremely unwisely, and is even reviving its coal sector. We've really got a debate here about Germany. I think if Putin does, if there are incursions or a full-scale invasion or some sort of really spectacular cyber event followed by green men, whatever it is, whatever concoction Putin might come up with in the coming weeks, I think what you'll have is a situation where Nord Stream 2 becomes untenable. And Russia's leverage, therefore, over Germany will cease to exist. I hope that Putin is weighing up that if he wants to keep Germany divided and ambivalent, he shouldn't invade Ukraine. Because I don't think Germany's ambivalence, and I don't think its fractured nature when it comes to the Russia debate, is sustainable in the face of Russian aggression to a nearby large democracy. I just don't think it will be. Facts, when facts on the ground change, Public opinion can change very quickly. So my assessment of the European unity is, well, there is, of course, Britain, no longer a member of the European Union, still a strong member of NATO, a little bit skeptical about Britain's upfrontedness on this issue, particularly since it coincides with Boris Johnson doing whatever he can to cling on to his job as prime minister. He is the master of changing the subject. And diversion. I don't disagree with Britain sending defensive weapons to Ukraine. I'm just a little bit suspicious of major public announcements on a Saturday night from the Foreign Office without backup evidence to say that Britain's got intelligence to say Russia has got a puppet government lined up for Ukraine. It might well have a puppet government lined up for Ukraine, but I kind of shared one of those putative puppets' response which is, is this Mr. Bean or James Bond? I, I'm, not, I'm not particularly trusting of Boris Johnson's integrity on releasing intelligence findings at this point. But Britain is out front on this issue, along with the United States, withdrawing staff from their embassies in Kiev. Others aren't. So there, there are differences of emphasis. I would say two things, by the way, quickly in response to that. One is, I think you're right. Generally speaking, we're talking about Germany. In this case, uh, other countries do make a difference, whether it's Britain providing defensive weapons or countries like Poland allowing troops to be deployed within those countries. That does make a difference in this kind of a situation. And the, the talk within Sweden and Finland of potentially joining NATO and thus making it larger at this moment has also resonated. So Slightly complicated. I, I also think the issue that you brought up and maybe should be the subject of our next discussion or a separate discussion, because, you know, when you talk about unintended consequences and events like this always produce unintended consequences, the U.S. government does not want to launch energy sanctions against Russia. They do not want to get into an energy related battle that has 
gasoline prices spiking across the world, not just because, you know, we get we get a lot of gas. You know, I think Russia is our number one supplier of foreign oil, not that we're dependent on it, but but we we get a chunk from them. But rising gas prices would have an inflationary impact here, which would be a bad thing. And of course, that would be a bad thing for China too. But Russia in a corner, we have to see what what it would do. Uh, and the US undoubtedly, if that were to start become the situation, would end up making calls to the Persian Gulf or the Arabian Gulf, because we they'd probably call the Saudis first. And that would change this equation a lot. I think we need to look at that closely. Can That's I add one quick thing, yeah. David, which is that I just saw in the New York Times that the Biden administration is saying it's making arrangements to substitute for Russian energy exports to Europe if Russia should invade Ukraine, which I'd love to know your thoughts on because it seems to me like a smart diplomatic move on their part. Uh, it's very smart if A, it's true, and B, it takes this quiver out of the, the this arrow out of the Russian quiver. It's just, you know, it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous situation. But and there's, you know, we should resist the temptation to define everything in terms of US politics. The one place Ukraine could come home to roost is if there were spiking gas prices or the the like due to this kind of instability. And that translated to the pump in the middle of an election year. I, I do think the administration is aware of that. And perhaps that's why they did what you just described. In any event, my guess is that we will be discussing this for weeks to come, uh, hopefully not months to come. Uh, this is a big issue. We will track it closely. We will bring in a whole bunch of, of top name experts along with our regular gang to discuss it. So join us here again and want to see what we got going, go to the DSRnetwork.com. In the meantime, thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Evelyn. In absentia, thank you, everybody, for listening. And, uh, and be careful out there. Still, still not, a, not an easy time with regard to the pandemic. Bye-bye. <laughs>